0: Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. Flying solo today, James Fox is taking a break, but I do have a special guest joining me. It's Julie Brady, our Winston-Salem correspondent. Julie's been a part of the Future Sox team since October of 2016. And if you follow her, you know the type of quality that she's able to provide in her writing. Julie, it's awesome to talk to you. Thanks so much for jumping on.
1: It's so good to be here. Thank you.
0: I'm excited uh, because I need some Yerman Mercedes love for <laughs> someone from someone who's uh, seen him up close and covered the team, especially twenty eighteen we were kind of talking about it before we recorded uh, this podcast here and that team specifically was so much fun and last season as well you were you were a part of the Winston group and there's i I love advanced day like there's a special spot in in my love for baseball because. That level, I feel like, like you get the first look at guys who we expect to be top prospects, and they're working their way, you know, and they're they're just feeling their way through high level of professional baseball. And we saw Nick Madrigal, Luis Robert, of course, Andrew Vaughn. So we'll get into all that. Uh, You can also find Julie on Twitter at Destroy Baseball. So Julie, let's talk about how you got into us here at Future Sox. And really, where where the love for baseball initially was inspired, I guess, take me back to where it all started for you. Where,
1: well, it all began um, in a storied year known as 2005, when I was a 13 year old girl, and uh, Major League Baseball doesn't really market to like preteen girls very well, or at least they didn't in 2005. Um, so, the, seeing my dad kind of get progressively more excited over the box scores. Um, Kind of what was what drew me into the to the game in general, um, you know. I remember their August collapse that year because my dad like groaned really loudly at the newspaper and was like, "Ah, oh, they're doing it again." <laughs> so, like at that point, baseball was this kind of unknowable, like vast thing that I that I didn't really have any idea about. Um, but when they made the playoffs, I started watching, um, and it, something just clicked to me. And and I just remember watching the World Series and like being so scared when the Killer Bees came up to bat. Um, and, you know, so, so into the White Sox heroes, you know, die and Creedy and Canerco. Um, so after that, you know, it was, it was done. I, I loved baseball with the same intensity that teenage girls love anything, which is a lot of intensity. Um, so it's just kind of, you know, continued on that level. And then I kind of fell in love with minor league baseball right after I graduated from college in 2014 and got an internship with the Kane County Cougars, um, who at the time were a Cubs affiliate and they had, um, Kyle Schwarber was on that team. David Bodie was on that team. Um, And they, they won something like 99 games between playoffs and regular season. Just one of the best teams I've ever seen. And that's a low A team. So between like the goofiness of the A-level minor leagues, like it's just a goofy, weird system. Um, And between how good the King County Cougars were that year, I just kind of fell in love with minor league baseball I never really looked back, and I was actually working with the Cougars two years later um when i was I was scouted off of Twitter by Future Sox's very own Matt Cassidy um after I tweeted a snarky comment about Aaron Schnerbush, which I guess was the magic words
0: um for Matt to be like, Hey, you want to write for us uh, and the rest is kind of history so did you always kind of enjoy writing because obviously you have a certain style that translates to text so where did that all start um
1: it- I'm not even really sure about that. It's something that in retrospect, instead of focusing my energies in college on my sports management degree, um, I should have probably followed like a baseball journalism path instead. Um, I had never really done writing. I had like a baseball blog in college that I updated infrequently. Um, So it was something that I always enjoyed, but not something that I did a lot until Matt reached out to me. And I'm really glad that um, I've been able to, to do that since
0: yeah that's really that's really cool that you're able to get an up close and personal look, especially working with affiliates. I mean, you're learning what it's like on a lower scale in terms of how minor league franchises run their operation, right? Because I mean some a lot of the time these front office staffs are pretty small, and the way that they take care of themselves, right they're they're owned, of course by major league organizations, however,
1: not necessarily owned by the major league organizations, um but definitely contracted with them.
0: Right. Thank you for clearing that up. So they're they're a part of these affiliates and they have to take care of themselves in terms of financial. Tell me about that experience for you, just living through that, understanding, okay, because I'm sure it changes your perspective, right, of understanding what it is that minor league baseball is really.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we would run into these misconceptions where fans would tell us to sign players or, you know, um, assume that it was the minor league front office that really had anything to do with baseball operations. But really, minor league front offices are concerned with stadium operations and not really the baseball, you know, side of things. They have nothing to do with roster construction or league assignment or trades or anything like that. That's all what the major league club does. Um, So the major league club, you know, pays the salaries of the, the players. But not of the employees. Um so generally, you know, people don't get paid a lot of money. I did not get paid a lot of money. I got paid, I think, probably about as much as the low A ball players were making. Um, and it's still just an insane amount of work, you know, working hundred hour weeks if there's a homestand. Um, normal normal hours if there's not a homestand, like nine to five. Um, but you know, things get get really crazy if they're at home and it's just a lot of work and it's a lot of fun and it's very rewarding, but also it's a lot of work and it's not a lot of money. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fun, like, looking, you know, now that I've had this experience, and, you know, I worked in social media also for baseball. So, like, I look at how people on Twitter, like, react to, you know, promos and marketing and, and um, just kind of having a better idea of, like, the decisions that, like, how the decisions are made and, like, the kind of meetings that lead to those decisions of people just being like, oh, well, how about we do this? Um, and then just kind of send it out into the world and see what people think. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The King County Cougars redesigned their logo and, you know, people were voraciously against it. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just kind of funny to see what people react to.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way because you talk about the front office caring about getting people into the ballpark and marketing the product. The play on the field and the players and everything else is kind of secondary. They're not necessarily focusing on that so much if they're winning obviously that's great but you're trying to create an atmosphere in the ballpark that you know affordable fan-friendly fun exactly and so let's transition over to the winston-salem dash mm-hmm. a team that you've been able to cover uh, for the last few years with us at future Sox. and you mentioned that well prior to us recording that they lead the league in attendance there in the carolina league can you talk about a little bit just that atmosphere of the front office and, and what you know about the dash internally
1: yeah. So the Dash are a little unusual um, in that their front offices are not actually in the ballpark. They're like down the street somewhere, which is not something that I had experienced um, in my career. So um, sitting in the press box, I generally only really got to know like the broadcasters like Joe Weil um, and like the scorekeeper and stuff. So I didn't really get a chance to talk to the promo director. Um, kind of the the command center was next to us and it always looked really interesting in there. You know, they had all these fancy cameras and complicated electronic equipment full of buttons that I wanted to press. Um, but I, I never really got to, you know, pick the brain of their their promo or marketing people. Um, but they did a really good job of just keeping people engaged in the game. Um, you know, between innings promos are something that I used to do a lot. And they just did a really good job making those consistently like fun and interesting, um, and pulling in fans that I think otherwise might not have been you know, because you don't go to a minor league baseball game, unless you're me, to, like, live tweet every pitch. Um, families go there to have a good time with their kids, and, like, there's also a baseball game happening. So I think the Dash do a really good job of recognizing that. Um, and then I think they strike a good balance between marketing their players, like the Luis Roberts and the Nick Mandrigals and the Andrew Bonds, um, with the, you know, kind of quintessential minor league family-friendly atmosphere.
0: So what's it like for you initially watching baseball obviously on television and then transitioning to covering baseball in person. So consistently, where's, what's so valuable about being there in person? Yeah. So,
1: so I have never really considered myself to have like a scouting eye or anything. Um, you know, to this day, I can't, I can't differentiate a slider from a splitter. Um, but watching in person, you know, there, I never had minor league TV or anything, MILB TV, um, so it's it's been hard to like get eyes on a lot of these players, and just being able to see them in person, you know, without the grainiest TV cameras in the world um is is really helpful. Um, you know, the way there's so there's so many like little things that you miss out on just by only watching like the highlight reels and getting to see like how players adjust pitch to pitch and how, you know pitchers will adjust also pitch to pitch. Um, You know, the little things that players do on the base paths, like Nick Madrigal, every time he makes it to second base, he has this like whole little like interpretive dance that he does where he just hops around back and forth trying to distract the the pitcher. Um, So it's really interesting kind of seeing like the full picture as opposed to just what the TV cameras are going to show you.
0: I think what's really cool as well is an opportunity for you covering the dash specifically for us, as well as other outlets like Southside HitPen you know, you're, you're able to cover these players consistently over a full season. And of course you're not traveling with the team, but you're seeing enough of these players and you can tell, uh, and I don't mean to speak for you, but you know, over time there are changes of course, and players obviously improve or decline to the point where they're going to stay at that, at, at that level, or they'll get promoted. Uh, some of, some of these, uh, players that you've covered have been a part of the Dash for multiple seasons in which you've been there. W- who are some of those guys that you kind of recall as, okay, I am I remember them. <laughs> I- I'm used to seeing them. You're rooting for them to improve. However, you're kind of used to their game at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Zach Remillard, I think, is the guy that comes to mind for that. Um, he, was, he kind of had a utility role in 2018 um, just because there was not really... A place for him in that super stacked team um, but in 2019 he became more of a regular um, he's one of those guys that can kind of play all over the field um, but in 2019 he was uh, playing shortstop pretty consistently and you know he's not you know a star prospect or anything he's not really going to crack anyone's top 20 lists um, but he provided them with pretty solid defense every day um, there was a stretch of about three months where he was just the team's most consistent hitter he was hitting around 300 Um, You know, he would just hit a double, he would, you know, he had a couple walk-offs, and it was kind of cool, just, you know, he was a little bit old for the league, especially at that point when he was repeating it, Um, but definitely, like, watching him develop from kind of a utility player into an everyday player, and, like, something to keep in mind, like, baseball is so hard to play, and I try to keep that in mind, like, whenever I'm judging prospects, um, that, like, hitting, you know, 250 in advanced day baseball doesn't necessarily bode well for your future as a, as a prospect, but it's still a very, very good accomplishment. I mean, not many people can hit 250 in in a ball. Um, So I think that, you know, even like, even when I'm talking about prospects that aren't really prospects, like I still want to recognize that they're still doing an amazing thing and that they still do have a lot of baseball talent, even if it's not necessarily major league level, you know.
0: There are so many interesting names that are part of the Winston-Salem Last two seasons with the dash. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when I think back of last season, I think of so many of your tweets when you say Jamison Fisher, good Fisher. at first I yeah. <laughs> So
1: in 2018, he played the outfield. Um, and, you know, I saw him a little bit playing the outfield and I noticed the mustache because, you know, everyone notices the mustache. Um, but I didn't really I don't think I even saw him enough in 2018 to really form any opinions about his play. Um, and then in 2019, he switched over to first base, which I guess is what he had played in college. Um, and like, that guy can do the splits. Um, I don't remember. So so in in Winston, pitchers chart pitches from the press box. So we get to, you know, listen in on their conversations. And like, I guess he does yoga. And, you know, I remember a pitcher just being like, yeah, that dude is the most flexible guy I've ever met. <laughs> and he just, the, like, he just drops into the splits, like every single game. And sometimes it's just like, you know, a gentle, like, Oh, I'm doing the splits to catch the ball. But sometimes he like yanks himself into the ground, like so hard that it hurts me. And I just don't know. I just don't know how he does it. Um, but it's really, it was really impressive to watch. Like, usually I don't um, think of first base as really, you know, a bastion of defense. Um, and I think Jameson Fisher was the first guy that I ever saw that was like, wow. You know, he actually stood out on the field because he was so good at first base of all places. I'm um, really fascinating to watch.
0: Yep, Jamison Fisher, good at first base. So, I mean, that's that's exact that's the example that I'm talking about. Is when you're you're watching these players so closely in person, you know, you, you, those are the sort of things that stand out, and um, are, you're able to differentiate in terms of you know separating player from player. But all right, let, let's talk about some of these guys that obviously are the highlight of the White Sox system, in which you were able to cover a little bit in Luis Robert. First of all, we have to talk about Luis Robert. You saw him. Uh, you saw him last year, and you saw him the year prior. Can you talk to me a little bit about what Luis Robert was, in your opinion? Yeah. So in 2018, um,
1: we saw him at the end of June during that uh, Frederick keyes dash series that was like five games. Um, so he had just returned from injury. It was like his first couple games back, um, and he didn't really look great at the plate. You know, he was kind of flailing a little bit, um, swinging at pitches that he shouldn't have swung at. Um, but whenever he made contact and ran down to first, just just running, you know, made him stand out. Even if he had not gotten a base hit all year, it would have been like sign this guy for his legs, um, just like a you know road runner blur of speed. Um, I've just never seen anything like it really. Just the way he can accelerate from home plate to first base, um, just really incredible. Um, and then in 2019, of course, when he figured it out at the plate and he was just, like, donging the ball every other at bat, um, just, just a ludicrous example of, of five tools all at work. Um, and it was really a pleasure to watch. You know, this is – he's the kind of guy that you drop everything to watch when they're up to bat. You know, the entire ballpark knows to watch this guy because something cool is going to happen. And whether that's him, you know, losing out on a infield base hit by one step or whether that's him hitting a home run that goes 20 feet beyond center field. Um, it's it's always just a pleasure to watch.
0: Yeah. I get that feeling with Luis Robert and most recently Andrew Vaughn as well. And we'll get to Andrew Vaughn too. Uh, but I, I want to hear your opinion of, of Luis Robert last season. He, he tore Carolina league to shreds. Sure. Uh, I mean, it wasn't even close. Like it, it, obviously he was, like too good for the level of competition
1: yeah.
0: um, and, and just in person, when you see him play like his size mm-hmm. and of course, and some of the things too, Julie, is that, you know, one of the concerns a lot of these experts are saying to us on the podcast is that Robert has sort of an aggressive approach to play and he's willing to chase. Could you speak on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. And he is willing to chase. And the thing, you know, I've seen him in at bats where he'll chase at a ball and look terrible and then, you know, two pitches later, squares it up and, you know, it's a triple left field. Um, so I think, you know, it was apparent even when he was with the dash for the brief month or so that he was, that he had been making adjustments. And I think that he will be the kind of player where sometimes he will chase terrible pitches and you'll want to scream at him in frustration and he'll strike out, you know, and, and, you know, there'll be disappointment there. But I think that it'll be far outweighed um, by like the circus style player that he is. Um, you know, I wish, I wish that I had gotten to see a little bit more of him because, um, he was really here in April in the beginning of May and I had finals in you know April in the beginning of May. So I couldn't go as much as I wanted to. Um, but the times that I was able to go there to see him, it was, you know, he would hit two doubles and a home run or he would hit a triple and two doubles, or he'd be, you know, four for five, um, with two stolen bases. So as much as he does have holes in his approach, um, he's very good, I think, at compensating for those holes and I'm very encouraged by the fact that he was able to keep up that level of hitting, not necessarily the four fifty level of hitting, but you know, an, an elite level for sure, through double A and through triple A. Um, and that's that says to me that he's been working on adjusting um his approach the entire time and I, I think that's bodes well for his major league future.
0: Yeah, I think uh you elucidated that well because, you know, Advanced day is such a good place for these prospects to kind of fix the fix the kinks. Uh, what about defensively in in Luis Rock? Because I know in BB and T ballpark their their gaps are pretty wide, and I know what is that in right center? It's like four fifty out there yeah, or something. Something
1: ridiculous. Um, and he has hit a baseball over that that wall. Um, yeah, defensively, um, I feel like I almost didn't really get a chance to see. Like cause it just depends on like how many balls are hit to center field, right? Um, but I also feel like he's kind of the player where in situations where other players would have to lay out and make these like ridiculous highlight catches. He's so fast that he's already there. So he makes really impressive catches without you even realizing that they're impressive. Um, I, I really wish that I had gotten to see his arm. Um, I don't think I really ever got a chance to see him like try to gun down a runner at home or anything, um, maybe a couple of times. Um, but you know, he, he does make those sliding catches. He does make those circus catches. Um, and then you know that they're really impressive because if he wasn't fast enough to get there to make it look easy, you know, he still got there. Um, so I never really, there was never anything that stood out to me as anything that he really did wrong in center field. It always seems like his instincts were pretty good. Um, I just didn't really get a ton of chances to see him show off his defensive prowess.
0: For sure. How about Andrew Vaughn? You know, a limited limited amount of games there in Winston-Salem, his first uh, professional season following his, Draft pick with the White Sox. How much of Vaughn did you see and what were your impressions?
1: Yeah, um, Vaughn. So, this is my Andrew Vaughn story that I'm like still mad about. Um, I went to every single home game between May and August. I mean, pretty much every single home game after May. Um, And I missed one that was during the day. It was like a 10 a.m. Wednesday game. Um, So, I had my internship. And that was the day that Andrew Vaughn got promoted. Um, so a, like I was going to be missing his first game, which I was really mad about. And then that was the game that he hit a baseball out of the entire stadium, you know, over the left field fence, over the stadium fence into the parking lot. So this is like a 470 foot home run. And like, there I am, like in the intern room at the public defender, just like following along on my computer. I was so mad. I was so mad. All of my intern friends learned the name of Andrew Vaughn that day. Um, It was was very frustrating. Um, So I felt a little better a couple days later when I did get to see Vaughn play, and um, that was the the game that they turned to triple play where Andrew Vaughn was first base. Um, So I felt a little better about that, but I was really mad that I missed that legendary home run. I mean, he hit that ball so hard that they didn't have a distance on it because it was never picked up by Statcast. Like, what? Just insane. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I wish I had gotten to see that. I think that was his only home home run of the season, so I never got to see him um, hit, hit a dinger. But I will say that the ball just jumps off his bat. I mean, every time he made contact, even if it was just an out, he hit that ball at like, 120 miles an hour. I mean, just, like, it was like a gunshot. Every single time it was a little scary, actually, <laughs> if you weren't paying attention and, like, all of a sudden there's just this explosion from the field. It's just like, oh, it's just bomb. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I uh, yeah. I think he had had a really long season up to that point. Um, so I think he only hit, I think, like 250 or something like that. Um, but you could tell, I mean, that he was e- even not getting the results that you would have wanted to see, you could still tell that he's an elite hitter.
0: Yeah, that season, Andrew Vaughn played over 100 games combined with his uh, college numbers and stuff. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's exciting. I mean, we figure that at least uh, with baseball, if it was on its normal schedule – Andrew Vaughn would start in A this season, which is tough for you and us as well. Um, but, I mean, he is on the fast track to being in the big yeah, leagues. As he and be. I agree with you. As much as I've seen Andrew Vaughn, it's on a limited basis, and you've seen him more than I have. But uh, he he has such a good command of the strike zone, and he, he just seems like he's a veteran hitter already. So that's very exciting. Great approach at the plate. Uh, all right, let's move on. Yermin Mercedes. <laughs> Julie, you've been all over Yermin Mercedes really <laughs> since insane. the get go. Yeah, talk about the Yearman train.
1: The Yearman Train. So back in that series where the Dash came up to Maryland um to play, so that was back when I was living in Maryland. I remember um Yerman Mercedes stood out to me on a team full of standouts because he drew a walk and immediately flipped his bat in a bigger bat flip than I've ever seen anyone do. So I was like, All right, Yerman Mercedes is a name that I should remember. Um and, you know, it paid off pretty well because even then he was just donging the ball every single time he hit it, just like a total showboat. And I I think that's like exactly the kind of player that you need on a roster. It's Just someone that like loves playing baseball and has fun doing it and is so fun to watch that, like, it, you know, it just it just you just want to see what he does next. Um, and I've seen encouraging reports recently on Twitter that main has gotten ripped um like your main has been using this difficult time to become totally buff and swole which is awesome how about that yeah so you know just watching him destroy every single league he was in last year I, I didn't really get to see him in person last year um but just like tracking him and just seeing the like trail of carnage that he left behind him um was really satisfying and like seeing more and more people being like oh your main mercedes um, I thought it was really cool. And I was I was so disappointed when they didn't call him up at, in September. Um, I think it would have been so much fun to watch that kid hit, you know, seven home runs in three weeks and just like kind of introduce himself to the world. So I really hope he still gets that chance.
0: Yeah. And he's capable of doing that. I think throughout spring training, I believe he had four prior to the cancellation of the year. I mean, he, and that included also um, that last week, he just hit a mammoth shot to tie the ball game I mean, he he's so full of energy, you could tell, and, and it's contagious. So you want, you know, uh, teams would benefit for having that sort of energy in the clubhouse as long as it's, you know, as, as long as it's a positively placed right. energy. Um, and Yerman seems like a pretty genuine dude who really loves what he does.
1: Yeah, and you're afraid, right.
0: Yeah. When, you, when you mentioned the, the picture on, that he posted on his Instagram or whatever <laughs> that was on social media, I couldn't believe it. I mean, yeah. You, I think of Williams Zostaio. You know, one of those types yeah. of the bigger players who yeah. obviously are are super talented. But mm-hmm. for him to slim down to the point where, man, I don't know. Like I'm starting to think that he could be a legitimate player this season. And with the expanded rosters that we assume that are going to take place, should baseball get underway, uh, I think I think he's a perfect fit for where the White Sox stand right now.
1: Yeah. And especially if major league baseball continues using the, the juiced ball that they were using last year, I think that Jeez. it it's your means world and we're just living in it. All
0: right. Last one for you. And I'd like to talk some pitchers as well, but you, you mentioned Nick Madrigal and I guess we can stick on, on, on Yerman as well, but I want to kind of tie this in just defensively. We know what Nick Madrigal brings to the table with the bat, but how about defensively? Could you speak on Yerman Mercedes, what you saw behind the plate? Of course. I mean, Anything noteworthy that stood out to you is he capable of of playing the position and how is Nick magical doing at second base?
1: yeah, so for Yermin, um i don't i I really don't feel like I got to see enough of him um, behind the plate to really be able to make an informed decision um i I don't think he was fantastic necessarily um I do have a memory that I'm not sure if it's a dream or not um, of him throwing out a runner at second so like I know he's capable of it. Um, and, and it's kind of hard for me to tell at this point, like, is it a meme that Mercedes is not a great catcher or is it true? I'm kind of inclined to believe that it's true. Um, but I think that his offensive production is enough to offset kind of any, any defensive gaps. Um, because I don't think that, you know, I don't think that he's like a total black hole, you know, I think that he's, he's capable. Um, and I'm interested to see how, how the new your mean bod, um, contributes perhaps to, to that. Um, so I, you know, I'd love to just see more of him and, and, you know, see, see how true the rumors are. Um, and then for Madrigal, so I, I like to say that there's no such thing as a good middle infielder in A-ball, you know, just an old, something my mom used to tell me. Um, but I, I kind of had to reconsider that when I started singing Madrigal play because that kid can get to balls. I mean, all over the infield, just like such great baseball instincts where like, he always knows where first base is and he always knows where the ball is. Um, And it's really fascinating watching him play like that. Um, The play that I always come back to is um, in, I think it was in 2018, actually, Um, you know, everyone knows the famous Derek Jeter, you know, running out into left field and, you know, jumping and twisting and throwing. Um, So Nick Madrigal made that play from second base, not from shortstop Madrigal ran all the way into left field glowed the ball, jumped, spun through, and the runner was out by, like, a step. Um, it was genuinely one of the most impressive defensive plays I've ever seen by a second baseman in my life, um, and that was kind of the moment where I was like, all right, okay, I think Nick Mandragon could could play second base, theoretically. Um, so I think that we are in for a treat when it comes to watching him every day in the, in the infield.
0: Uh, that's pretty reassuring on all fronts, really. I mean, covering all the bases here on some really interesting prospects that you were able to cover in person. Positionally, now let's let's talk some arms because, yeah. boy, I tell you what, Jonathan Stever is captivating a lot of the White Sox audience here, yeah. and some experts believe that he can translate to be you know a top three arm in the White Sox rotation potentially. Do you agree with that from what you saw? Um, based on how
1: Jonathan Stever performed at his peak, I would say yes. Um, I think that for his last couple of starts, maybe the fatigue of the season was getting to him. Um, I think it was his first full, like maybe his second full professional season, um, but he had a stretch of like seven or eight starts where he was just getting better with each one. Where you know, I remember one where it took him into the third inning to throw his first ball of the game. It was like 19 straight straight strikes or something like that. Um, and I know that he had problems in Kannapolis where he was kind of getting lit up with home runs, um, and he you know was working with coaches. By the time he got here. Um, to kind of tighten up his delivery Um, and it really worked out and it gave him a couple miles an hour on his velocity so he was hitting like 98 99 um, and just just everything he threw was a strike just I've never like just attacking the strike zone here's my pitches you can hit him if you can most of the time they couldn't I think every one of his starts was a quality start Um, and every time he gave up runs it was like in a cluster so even if he gave up three runs in six innings it would be like a combination of like two or three bad pitches and just the situation kind of rolled out that way Um, but otherwise it was just like throw a strike you're out throw a strike you're out throw a strike you're out and just the consistency was amazing and and he was just really fun to watch and he really subscribes to the mark burley school of pitching where like just get the ball throw the ball get the ball throw the ball Um, which any minor league employee will tell you is really valuable and kind of a dying art Um, So just really, really an interesting guy to watch pitch. And I got the very distinct impression that he was still getting better. So that's exciting.
0: I, uh, that gets me really, I remember you writing about that recap and emphasizing how, how good Jonathan Stever was in terms of attacking the strike zone. And uh, yeah, looking at his whip, just his numbers quickly, a sub one whip (laughs) and 71 innings that's pretty darn good and he made 12 starts uh, so that's that's very encouraging and a strikeout to walk ratio was was phenomenal 17 mm-hmm. 77 strikeouts compared to 13 walks yeah so good. you love you love what you see there only 56 hits allowed and of course it's advanced day so you take it with a grain of salt but also at 22 years old I mean he dominated that level of competition so th- that's that's really exciting but you also mentioned the pace in which he's able to you know get through a ball game and a start and somebody that you know, kind of kicked in my mind once you mentioned that as Connor Pilkington. Yeah. Pilkington, a uh, third round draft pick in, in 2018 with the White Sox, left-handed. That's something of value you figure, you know, we're keeping an eye on Pilkington, a higher round draft pick, of course, but from the left side, who, who can fill some innings? I mean, he did okay, right? In, in his first season in Winston-Salem. What, what did you think of Connor Pilkington when you saw him?
1: Yeah. So Pilkington um, had, a little bit more inconsistency than Stever where sometimes he would be really good. And then sometimes he would just throw a total clunker. Um, So he kind of struck me as someone that was still more on the development side of things than Stever was Um, because, you know, when you get to Stever's point, when you're just up there, you know, throwing gas and, you know, challenging batters every single at bat and just getting nothing back um, you know, Stever could have been promoted, I think halfway through the run that he had with the dash Um, but Pilkington seemed more like he was kind of working through some things on the mound um so i always thought that his his windup is was interesting because he does this little glove shake um i i don't know if it's to like throw off the batter or, or what um but i always thought that it was kind of interesting when he did that um and you know sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't there's definitely potential there you know you can see flashes of it sometimes um he just he just has to get more consistent you know i don't i don't really know exactly where the problem is with him um sometimes you know he would get kind of mired down in higher pitch counts um but then sometimes he would just breeze through innings and i would be like all right like this is the pilkington we know and love um so i hope that we get to see more of that next year or
0: this year right um pilkington 22 years old this year Hmm. as a 21 year old pitched with winston salem Um, and and it should be noted jonathan stever in his age 22 season put up that 2.15 era uh, with the dash last year pretty pretty good pretty good all right so let's see let's see who else we got here I'm looking at the roster from last season and I I can't I always have to bring up Cade McClure because I'm so I'm so interested in McClure I mean he's got the size you know and he's not overpowering but I, I love his stuff and I feel like there's potential there what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on Cade McClure?
1: Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of Kid McClure. Um, a, he is huge. He is so tall. So every time he would come into the press box um, to chart pitches, he would have to, like, duck through the door. Um, I think he's, like, six seven, just, like, a hugely tall guy. Um, he's also maybe the funniest White Sox prospect, at least when it comes to the pitchers. Um, I feel like, you know, the press box was always full of laughter when McClure was in there. Um, so, like, there's that on one hand. And then on the other hand, he's also a very good pitcher. Um, I know he had that like weird kind of freak knee injury in 2018 that ended his season early. So he was coming back from that in 2019 um, and really just pitching super well all season. He, I, I, for some reason, he just didn't stand out I think as much as Stever cause he doesn't really throw as hard. Um, but you know, he, he did a really good job. He had a couple, I think of, of rough starts, but other than that, I'm sorry, you might hear the train horn in the background. <laughs> I, I live close to a train. Um It's the Cade McClure alarm. Uh, So he had a lot of really good starts. And I'm looking at his stats now, and he ended the season giving up seven runs. But that was his worst start of the entire season. You know, usually it's between zero and three. Um, So when he was on the mound, like, it was a pretty good likelihood that it was going to be a Winston-Salem dash win.
0: What's it like living in that area?
1: It's cool. I live right downtown, um, so it's cool when the train is not coming through. Um, and being as loud as possible. I'm about five minutes away um, by car from the ballpark. So it's really nice. Um, It's a really quick drive, really quick commute. Um, I love this city. It's just a really cool, small city. Um, I'm really enjoying
0: my time here. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, let's uh, let's move forward here. That's really good stuff, Julie. I mean, you're all over it. And we're really hoping that Baseball in some capacity, obviously, in a safe way uh, is able to take place this year. Let's talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind, because obviously we're focused on the minor league scene. But first things first, players and the owners have to come to an agreement um, on what's fair and what they believe is just in terms of, you know, they're taking the risk here and they got to get on the field. And this is unprecedented times, obviously. So right now, there's some changes. It seems like there's going to be an abbreviated season if this, you know, th- this does pass and these players do get back on the field in terms of, all right, we're going to work out a few weeks for spring training. We're going to play in these three team or right, these three divisions filled with ten teams uh, regionally. I mean, it's you know, a complete shakeup. Um, Universal DH all across the board. I mean, that's it's 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 fascinating. It's it's going to go down in history as one of the unique uh, seasons in all of sports. But I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. I'm just, I feel iffy. You know, I I can't, obviously, as a fan, I want to watch baseball. And of course, it's fine if there's no fans in the ballpark. But I I don't know, in the back of my mind, I just don't know if it's a good idea. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of on the
1: same boat. And it's like, in any case, even if they do manage to do an abbreviated season, like there's not going to be a minor league season, which is so disappointing. Um, you know, just developmentally, this was such a huge year for so many of those guys, especially the guys repeating, um, double a, um, but I'm kind of on the same boat as you Where I just, I, I don't really see how they can pull this off safely. Um, I know that, you know, everyone's talking about ballplayers are young and healthy, but you know, young and healthy people are still dying. And, you know, there's baseball players with underlying conditions. There's baseball players with loved ones who have underlying conditions, Um, You've got the managers, you've got the coaching staff, you've got, you know, clubhouse people, Um, you know, it's so much more than just the athletes themselves. And I think that there's so much uncertainty still in how the virus works and kind of the long term effects of the virus. Um, And I don't know if we should really be lining up to sacrifice young athletes health potentially um, just to to play some games. And like, I love baseball. I would love for baseball to be back. You know, it's it's May and there has been no baseball and it's just the world feels so empty without it. But I don't think that I don't think that watching baseball play under these weird circumstances with weird like spacing rules is really going to like heal the heart of a nation in any meaningful way. Um, So I I, I, on one hand, like I hope they do, because like I want to see Luis Robert hit triples. Um, But on the other hand, like, I don't want people to potentially die. So, like, to me, it's kind of an easy choice, Um, even if I know that it's, like, not statistically likely that any player would. It's very possible still. Um, You know, who knows who has underlying conditions that they don't even know about yet? You don't don't know how safe you are. Um, So just I think there's a lot of question marks that I would need to have filled before I would feel comfortable going forward with the season Obviously, I have no power or say in that, um, but it's just, it's pretty concerning to me.
0: Yeah, two two really important points, I think, is the ramifications, right? Kind of outweigh what happens should players get back on the field and play, right? If things go wrong. I mean, it, it, that is something very scary to think about. Yeah, uh, and, and two, I, I think just the focus, right, of getting any sort of amount of people together a collection of people of i don't know 30 40 50 it it starts to get a little dicey mainly because like like you said is all these health professionals that are see i work at 670 the score in chicago and we have multiple doctors that come on the air so we hear from health professionals and they're talking about okay this is in its infancy like we're we're a few months in already and yet we, we still don't really have an idea. And then you, you listen to the other side of the coin financially and economically, that's what combats, you know, the science of it. So how do we balance like morals, ethics, right? You know what I mean? When it comes to treating something so unknown uh, and, and I, I don't know, like obviously there's so much money tied to this season and, Owners, of course, don't want to take that hit. And players, to their credit, you know, they're losing an opportunity to provide for their families this year. You know, It's different on many different levels because of the scale in which some of these players are getting paid. Right. Uh, and then from the owner's perspective as well, they invested in these guys, and those players will accumulate service time, yeah. um, at least what, what we know at this point. I mean, there's so much that goes into this. And uh, I just, I don't know, Julie, this is, this is kind of crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, what happens if like one player tests positive? Do you quarantine that team? Do they have to sit out the month? Like, I...
0: yeah, that's, that's interesting because um, Adam Silver, I guess this was reported by Adrian Wojnarowski. He said that, I guess, Silver suggested that if a player, it's like if the NBA gets going again, and this is in the NBA, you know, there's a lot, there's facilities that are opening up. Uh, especially in Arizona like f- full on full go but should a player test positive they would obviously have to test the rest of the people uh, like associated with that per- that player however you can't shut it down once you get it going again yeah. right so you know they'll quarantine that specific player but then continue business as usual so i mean there's a trickle down effect ultimately should this virus continue to infiltrate. You know what I mean? So I feel like baseball may have to stick to that approach as well. I don't know what your take is on that, but I feel like that's the, that's the only reasonable option at this point. Like if they're going to commit to being back on the field, yeah. right. If a player tests positive, then that player has to be quarantined, but the show goes on. Yeah. I
1: I mean, just, you know, those guys basically live together. They're in the clubhouse breathing on each other. I know that there's something about how like, you know, they would sit in the stands six feet apart or whatever, but I just, you know, knowing baseball players, um, I don't think that that would really be an effective way of curbing any kind of spread. Cause like they're dudes, they're dudes that love to have fun and like hang out. Um, and, you know, I don't think that playing baseball in like kind of a sterile, you know, impersonal, you know, six feet apart from everyone. And you can't, you know, spit sunflower seeds. It just, it, it, I feel like if it did come back, we would just be watching kind of a hollow shell of a game, and I don't know how good that would feel.
0: Yeah, how about that? They're implementing some of these guidelines: no spitting, right? You can't high five, fist bump, and that's that's everything that they do. I mean, it's it's instinctual. They don't, you know, it just happens. And I'm thinking too, you know, like I'm watching the KBO a little bit, and I can't help but notice. Okay, a pitcher throws the ball to the catcher. The catcher throws the ball back to the pitcher. Mm-hmm. The ball is put in play. Three, four, five players touch that same baseball. You know, it's I don't know. It's 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 a dangerous world. Yeah. This is a sport with a pitch called the spitball,
1: so I'm not really sure why yeah. we're too confident.
0: Uh and and you know, the argument is too, it's like, well, baseball is a non-contact sport, they have more of, you know, a chance to making this work. I don't know. There's implications surrounding it. And I don't want to like focus too much on the negative here it's just all of the concerns that of okay. course the players are bringing up as well not only you know just in a physical sense but also like we didn't even touch on the financial ramifications yeah. here but you yeah. know it's all in play um so on that positive note <laughs> <laughs> um what uh what are your final thoughts here as we wrap up this podcast uh just just anything that i guess your takeaways from this entire process the way that major league baseball is handling the overall circumstances that we face today.
1: Yeah. I just think that, that baseball is a little bit too eager to, um, to get the money machine back rolling. Um, And, you know, I think that in a, in a just world, well, I think that in a just world, there probably wouldn't be billionaires, but in a, in a more just world than than the one in which we live, I think that the billionaire owners, you know, should be able to look at their own bank accounts. And, you know, it's one year of, of not having a baseball, like this is not going to bankrupt a team. This is not going to bankrupt any owner. Um, Who could, you know, they could pay for the salaries of all of their minor leaguers and their major leaguers without even really noticing a loss. Um, So I think that, you know, the kind of gnawing at the bit to get back to baseball in order to start making money again, just feels a little exploitative almost to me, um, because, you know, I think that it's more important to be alive than to be making money. Um, And, you know, I could get on my anti-capitalism high horse here. I'll say that for a different time. Um, But, you know, I think that that's kind of a big part of the problem where, you know, the money exists, the money exists. And like, we don't really have to be forcing this because the money exists just in the wrong places. So I I think that the rushing forward to kind of try to start something, um, I just think that there's too many things that could go wrong and there's too much that we just don't know.
0: Yep. The whole point is keeping everybody alive. Yeah. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. So, yeah. all right, Julie, this was, this was a really fun conversation. It was. I, I learned a lot. Um, <laughs> I hope, I hope uh, we can do this again soon. And obviously we want baseball to come back. I mean, we didn't, we, uh, what what else is there to say about the minor league scene at this point? I think we understand that baseball isn't happening on that level in terms of a legitimate minor league season. Right. Uh, w- what do you think is going to happen to these minor leaguers? Because if baseball does get underway and they implement this taxi service system, right. the minor leaguers have to get in somehow. So how do you think that plays out?
1: Yeah, man, I think we're going to see a lot of retirements this year. Um, you know, the paycheck is already so low. If you're not on the 40 man that, you know, these players have to get like construction jobs in the off season um, just, just to make ends meet. So I think that, you know, not having an entire season at all, is just going to be devastating to a lot of kids. And, you know, next year, they're going to, we're not going to have 40 teams that we, that we did have. Um, You know, we have the absurd draft this year, the five round draft, that's going to, you know, shunt a lot of kids into different sports um, or just not being able to pursue baseball just financially. Um, So I think it's, it's going to have a profound effect on depth of talent for years to come. And, you know, I hate thinking about it because it's so depressing, but that's the times in which we live.
0: That's Julie Brady, Future <laughs> Sox, Winston-Salem correspondent. Thanks so much for jumping on the Future Sox podcast. We'll be in touch, of course. Uh, this was fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You can follow all of our stuff on com. We are putting out some draft profiles as well. We're covering the Major League Baseball draft. That's, I guess, starting on June 10th. That uh, will happen. Apparently five round draft. We'll get into all of it. We're talking Also on the Patreon podcast this week about that very topic, among others. So check us out on Patreon. Support us if you can. Also follow us on Twitter. You can follow Julie on Twitter at DestroyBaseball. Go to anchor.fm slash futuresocks to check out our entire library. We are on iTunes and Spotify as well. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. We will talk to you all next time.